you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to open them once again to 2 Peter. And we're going to be looking at chapter 3, beginning with verse 10 in just a second. We're coming to a conclusion of a sermon series that we began some months ago, looking at the epistles, the letters of 1 and 2 Peter. If you're faint of heart, if you're the anxious and stressful and worrisome kind, if you like lightheartedness and fluff, you haven't liked the last few months. Because First and Second Peter are books, are letters, are epistles of warning. Peter is warning the church and the saints of his day. And he's warning the church and the saints of our day of satanic attack that is coming, that is going to increase and intensify as the coming of our Lord and Savior draws near. He talks about that hatred, that hostility, that persecution, that attack of Satan coming from the government and then coming from false prophets. An attack from the outside in, an attack from the inside out. How is it all going to end, Pastor? Well, that's what Peter's going to tell us today. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. But the day of the Lord, now pay attention to that, the whole message is going to turn on that phrase. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervor and heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it shall be burned up. Verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with the fervent heat. Nevertheless, verse 13, we according to his promise look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The day of the Lord. I heard the story of three friends that were talking. Three men who were friends talking about, of all things, their death, their funeral, all the things that go with that kind of stuff. And they got to talking about, when they have their funeral, what they would like people to say about them. Well, the first man was a doctor. And he said, I would like people to say at my funeral that I was a good doctor, I was a good physician, that I helped many people have a better quality of life. I helped many people have a longer life. The second man, who was an educator, a school teacher, said, I would like at my funeral for someone to say that I cared about my students that I had an influence over them, I had an impact on them, I made them better for being in my class. 
not only better for this life, but better for the life to come. That I made a difference. The third man, who was neither a doctor or a teacher, said, I would like it said at my funeral. I would like somebody to say, look, he's moving. (laughs) All of us have ideas, don't we? about how we would like to see our end come about, how we'd like to see it all transpire. We don't know about ourselves, but Peter knows about our world as a whole, the human race as a whole. And he's talking in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, in the verses we just read, he's talking about how our world is going to come to an end how our world is going to transpire one day. And that day is called the day of the Lord. The prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament, and the Lord Jesus himself have much to say in the scriptures about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a time. It's a general time, but it's also a specific day. It's a a time in future history when this world is going to be blown apart by God. Not by the communist, not by the Islamist, not by some madman capitalist. One day our world that's falling apart before our very eyes already is going to be blown apart in a cataclysmic judgment by God. God has already judged the world for its wickedness once in the days of Noah with a flood. He said, I'll never do that again. The rainbow is my promise to you. I will never judge the world again with a flood, with water. The next judgment is going to come, though, and it will be a fiery judgment with fire. And both judgments are against the ungodly, against the wicked those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and those who have rejected his word and chose to follow Satan and his cronies. Now the day of the Lord that Peter's speaking of here, once again, pay attention, is a span of years, but it's also a specific day. And this day of the Lord, I think that Peter's making reference to here specifically will be triggered when our Lord Jesus Christ returns to the valley of Megiddo at the end of the tribulation period, at the end of World War III. His return will be to confront the unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, along with all of the demonic armies and human armies that are brought together to stop his return. Our Lord's return is the day of the Lord as given to us in Revelation chapter 19, which we'll read in just a little while. That's the specific time of the day of the Lord, but it will go, it has its, its, its shadows on the front end and it has more to come on the back end. Our Lord's return. When you think about our Lord's return on this day of the Lord, I want you to think about the fact that this return will be personal. 
he shall come himself. Now, I don't know about you, I'd be happy if Michael the archangel came. I'd be happy if Gabriel come. I'd be happy if any number of angels come. But he's not sending an angel. I'd be happy if a saint came. It'd be happy with me if Abraham came, or, 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 or Moses came, or Peter came, or Paul came. But when our Lord returns, it will be a personal return. He is coming again. No delegation. He is coming again. Also, it will be a literal return. He's not coming back as a ghost. He's not coming back as some broadcast image. He's coming back in person. He's coming back bodily. You will see a bodily Jesus when he comes on the day of the Lord. A personal return. He's coming himself. A literal return. A bodily return. He's coming. It will also be a visible return. Unlike the rapture phase of his return, when only his people will see him, at the revelation phase of his return, Revelation 19, the day of the Lord, his return will be visible to everyone. Every man will see him. Every woman will see him. Every teenager, every boy, every girl who looks up into the eastern sky will see him. He will be visible to all. The Bible says every eye shall see. His return will be sudden. It's not going to be gradually spread out. It will be quick. It will be rapid. It will be speedily. It will be swift. He's coming. It, it will be sudden. Though the world might be expecting it, they won't expect it. Because it will happen so quickly. It will be a mighty return. The first time he came, he came as a lamb. A lamb to be slaughtered for the sins of the world. He came as a mouse. He came as a chicken boo. He didn't come to fight. He came to save. But when he comes again, he'll come as the Lion of Judah. He'll come in majesty. He'll come in might. He'll come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Not as a sacrifice, but as a sovereign. His return will be victorious. The same word that spoke into creation everything. That same word will vanquish Satan's army of vile demons and wicked men. Gunfight at OK Corral was nothing like this. And you think wrestling's fixed, this one's fixed too. Because when 777 confronts 666 at the day of the Lord, I can tell you who's going to win. And in fact, it won't even be a fight. He will speak the word. It's over. Now, are you thinking about this return? It'll be personal. It'll be literal. It'll be visible. It'll be sudden. It'll be mighty. It'll be victorious. But Peter adds one more caveat, if you will. He says it will be an explosive return. Our world, planet Earth, 
everything above it, everything around it, and everything in it is going to come to a cataclysmic end. A fiery annihilation is going to take place of this world. All that's above it, all that's on it, and all that's in it. That's called the day of the Lord. That's why we're told repeatedly in the scriptures to hold the things of this world lightly. Because one day they're all going to be taken from us. The only thing that you hold hard is Jesus. Because he's forever. So looking at your Bibles, looking at your text, let's walk through this real quickly. Peter says, first of all, this day of the Lord that we've already talked about, the second phase of the return of Jesus Christ, the revelation phase, if you will. He tells us once again it's going to be catastrophic. In verse 10, Peter, who was a fisherman by vocation, who became a gospel preacher later, he started out catching fish, and then he turned to catching men. I don't know which is the hardest, but he did both. To my knowledge, Peter didn't have a high school diploma. I know he didn't have a university degree, and I know he didn't have doctor on the front of his name or Ph.D. on the back of his name. Peter was largely uneducated when it came to academic things. And it's interesting, pay attention, how could this uneducated man, academically speaking, how could he say what he said in verse 10? Because he's talking like a nuclear scientist. He's talking about somebody who knows about atoms and protons and neutrons. He's talking like somebody who understands the elements. He's talking about somebody who understands nuclear explosions. Notice what he says in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now notice his terminologies that will, that will follow. Three, they're threefold. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now he says that in verse 10. He comes right back a couple of verses later, and he almost says the same thing. When somebody says something in the Bible once, you ought to listen. But when it is repeated twice in the scope of two or three verses, your little antennas ought to be going off on your head like this. Because God is communicating the truth to us, and he's using Peter to do it. Now what is Peter saying? Let's translate those three descriptions. On the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns again, the revelation phase of his return, when he comes back to earth with the saint, when he comes to the valley of Megiddo, when he comes at the end of the tribulation, when he comes at the end of World War III, when he brings the armies of the world and the demonic armies of, of the dark world together, along with the Antichrist and the false prophet, all of them will be together to stop Jesus. What's going to happen? The heavens will pass away with the great noise, he says. 
Everything about this world that I've already told you, upward, space above us, inward, the core of this world that we can't see, the core, and everything outward will disappear in an explosion. Just like that. That's what he says. The elements will melt away with fervent heat. Verse 10 again, see that? The elements. The moon. The stars. The sun. The sky above us. All of it. The earth itself will not only be destroyed, but it will be dissolved into a liquid. Because the explosion will create an intense heat. And that heat will consume everything that has been destroyed. Now, as I'm talking to you, can you imagine anything that's ever happened that would even be close to this? Then he says in verse 10, earth and all of its works will be burned up. The earth will cease to exist. Exploded into pieces, melted down by fire, and then vaporized into smoke. Now where could this fisherman get this kind of information from? Where could this gospel preacher learn of such things? God's Spirit gave it to him. And he writes what he was given. Did he understand this? I don't know if he did or not. But he was faithful to record it as it was given. And his language vaguely describes a nuclear explosion. Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Imperial Japan, World War II. Our government chose, instead of invading the islands and, and, and having hundreds of thousands, if not millions of casualties, they decided to bring an end to the war using atomic bombs. And if you've seen pictures of those atomic bombs, the giant mushroom, and then you see what it did to the impact area, it almost describes what Peter's talking about. Except God is the one who's going to do it next time. A world that's falling apart is going to get blown apart by a judgment of God. Notice in verse 13, once that occurs, something else will occur in verse 13. Nevertheless, we according to His promise, look for the new heavens. New heavens. And a new earth and which righteousness will dwell, not wickedness, if I can add that. God is going to create a new world order. Now, Satan is going to have a new world order for seven years before God's new world order. You see, Satan, after the rapture of the church, which is another subject, I hope you understand what that is, but after the rapture of the church, there's going to be a tribulation period. And that's when Satan will have a chance 
to establish his new world order, a fourth Reich, if you will. Adolf Hitler tried to establish the third Reich. He failed. There was a fourth Reich coming. And this will be spearheaded by Satan and the Antichrist, the world leader that he will choose, and the false prophet who will join up with him. Satan's new world order that's coming, and we're already seeing the shadows of it. Whenever you see the shadows of something, you can rest assured the person or the thing behind the shadow is coming soon too. I'm looking at my shadow as I speak to you. I'm behind the shadow. When you see the shadow of Satan's new world order coming together, you know it's not far behind. Satan's new world order will be a one world government. Nationalism will be out. Globalism will be in. The nations of the world will come together under one leader whose name will be Antichrist. He will be the ruler of the world, the Western world particularly. And this new world order by Satan will not only have a one world government led by Antichrist, it will have a one world banking system also led by Antichrist. He will control the finances of every single person in his domain. You say, Pastor, how in the world can one man control my pocketbook? I live in Lincolnville, South Carolina. Nobody knows where I'm at. He'll know. The way our economy is structured, everybody knows everything. And if they don't know it, they just push a button on a giant computer and they'll find it out. So the Satan's new world order, which will only be for seven years, begins with a one-world government led by Antichrist, a one-world banking system led by Antichrist, a one-world religion, a one-world church, if you will, led by his, his partner, the demonic duo. And that one-world church, that one-world religion, will be led by the false prophet. So that's the new world order that's coming. Remember, Satan always counterfeits what God's going to do. So before the new world order that Peter's talking about, the new heavens, the new earth, Satan will have his shot at it. And remember, Satan is always about death. He's not about life. He's about death. Death is Satan's card. And the new world order that he is going to create one world government, a one world banking system, a one world church will come with death. And this is, I just want to drop this on you. Three and a half billion people will die in three and a half years for him to establish the new world order. Three and a half billion. Half the world's population will die who gets in his way to establish this. You say three and a half billion? Three and a half billion. That's half the world's population will die. Because they dare oppose this man with satanic energy and empowerment who is going to establish a government he's going to rule, a banking system he's going to rule, and a church that he's going to force to worship him. It'll all come undone when Jesus returns. That's what Peter's talking about. 
Revelation 19 tells us all about that. Let me just read it to you. I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. Now this is speaking of Jesus coming, the day of the Lord. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure and white linen. A sharp sword came out of his mouth that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He also will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe, on his thigh. This one who is coming, Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. When he comes, as I told you earlier, he will vanquish the devil. He'll vanquish the Antichrist. He'll vanquish the false prophet. He'll defeat the armies of demons. He'll defeat the armies of men. He'll destroy this planet and everything above it, everything on it, and everything under it. Then he's going to establish a brand new heaven, not a remade heaven, a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. You say, Pastor, how can he do all that? <laughs> in the beginning, he created what? Help me out, the heavens and the earth. He'll create it again. Verse 13 tells us it's promised. It's promised. This isn't things so, maybe so, could be, might be. This is will be. You see, Peter says in verse 13, it's a promise. And when God makes a promise, he does it. And God is promising that there will be a new heavens and there will be a new earth. God said this to Isaiah in Isaiah 65. He told Isaiah the prophet this was coming. Then he told Peter, who tells us. He told Paul before that, who talks to us in other books of the Bible about it. Revelation 21, beginning with verse 1 tells us what it's going to be like, this, this new earth that he's going to create. Listen to what John says. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, had been destroyed, dissolved, vaporized, and the sea was no more. I also saw, as this new heaven and new earth was being made, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling place is now with men. He will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away in his new world order. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief and crying and pain will be no more because the things of the old space, the old world, have passed away. All things have become new. Wow. So there's a new world order coming. The first one's going to fail like the others have failed because they were satanically created. But when God comes, he will create his own new world order, a new heaven, a new earth. God's presence will be in the midst of his people. We will worship him by sight because he will be with us. There will be peace. The lion will lay down with the lamb. Military weapons will be changed into agricultural equipment. 
There will be a paradise created. Adam and Eve had paradise before they sinned and wickedness entered the world. We'll have it again. A world that's a paradise created by God himself, full of provisions. There will be plenty for all. Nobody will be hungry. Nobody will be homeless. Nobody will be abused. No hospitals, no funeral homes, no asylums, no nursing homes. There's no more sickness. There's no more death. You say, Pastor, that's heaven on earth. You got it. What it will be like. It'll be perfection. Perfection. And then lastly, we close. Peter says this day of the Lord is going to be catastrophic. But it also is going to lead to a new heavens, a new earth, a new world order put together by God himself for his people. And then he closes out in verse 11. He says, if these things are true, and they are, how should we live? You see, if you don't make application to what I just told you, then application has no meaning to you. That's one of the problems we have. We got it all up here, but it never applies to our daily life. Everything you learn on Sunday should have application Monday through Saturday to how you live. So, so if this is all true, and it is, how should we live? Look at verse 11. Peter will tell you as we close. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, going back to verse 10, all of this that he just said, what manner of persons ought you to be in, I want you to say that word. What comes next? What manner of persons ought you to be in? Holy? Say holy. holy. Say holy. holy. Say holy. holy. Holy conduct and godliness. You say, Pastor, why did you ask me to say holy three times? Because many preachers never say it, and people in the church don't say it no more. And yet, if you say, I want to be like Jesus, what is Jesus? He's holy. I want to follow Jesus. How do you follow Jesus? By being holy. The modern church today and most modern ministers today have set the bar of holiness so low that Jack the Ripper could jump over it. We have set the moral bar so low the theological bar so low that the church has become a place of unholiness. And we do it justifying it by saying, well, people will come if we have an unholy place where they can come and feel comfortable. That's ludicrous and it's nonsense. You don't bring people to Jesus by lowering the bar. You bring people to Jesus by raising the bar. If he be high and lifted up, and he is holy, all men will be drawn to him. If he be lowered and be treated as an unholy thing, nobody will be drawn to him. Even the world has enough sense that the church ought to be different than the world. He says we need to be holy. Now, very quickly, that word holy has two definitions. One means to be different, the other means to be separate. He says you're to be holy. Which one is he talking about? 
to be different or to be separated. He's talking about both. Both words play into here. At the Lord's, because the Lord's coming draws near. We, the people of God, we, the church of God, individually and corporately, should stand out like a red rose in a field of brown weeds. We're not to be weird, we're not to be strange, but we're to be different. When somebody sees you, they ought to say there's something different about that person. I can't put my finger on it, but they're different. When somebody hears us talk, we're different. When somebody watches our lifestyle, we're different. Not weird, not strange, not abnormal, not obnoxious. We're different. And it's that difference that is a magnet that draws people. And then we're to be separate. As the Lord's coming draws near and we're going to be holy, then we need to be separate. Separate means set apart from sinfulness, set apart from unholiness. I was trying to come up with an illustration, and I, I thought about my mother when she used to wash clothes. Mom would put all the white clothes in one stack and all the colored clothes in another. Now, when my dad washed clothes, he didn't do that. He just kind of threw all the stuff together. And therefore, your white T-shirt had red tin in it. But mom knew how to wash clothes, and she taught me how to do it. And so now when I wash clothes, which is very little of the time, but when I do, whites go in one pile, colored clothes in another. I separate them. And that's what Peter's saying. We should be separated. Sin over here, righteousness over here. Unholiness here. Righteousness here. We should be separate. We don't isolate ourselves from people because we're light, and light's no good unless you bring it into darkness. We're salt. Salt's no good unless you bring it into decay. But we don't participate in the darkness and decay that's around us. We should be holy. We set the bar high. This is how we live our life morally. This is what we believe doctrinally. We don't lower the bar. We present ourselves as holy. We're different. We're separated. I want to close by telling you a, a true story. The greatest baseball player who ever lived, or could have been the greatest baseball player who ever lived, was a man by the name of Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle played for the New York Yankees back in the 50s and 60s. He hurt his leg early in his career, and that damaged leg hindered him greatly as far as being in the outfield or even batting. Still, he's one of the top ten players of all time, and he played much of his career on an injured leg that he never fixed. It hampered his speed. It hampered his ability to play outfield. It hampered his ability to hit the baseball. Mickey Mantle also had another problem. He was an alcoholic. He was a drunkard. He was a functional alcoholic. He drank until he was intoxicated every single night, got up the next day and went out on the ball field and played like an all-star. That's how talented the man was. Many people talked to Mickey Mantle about sobriety. He wasn't interested. Many people talked to Mickey Mantle about religious things. He wasn't interested. All he was interested in was drinking alcohol, chasing skirts, and playing baseball. And gambling. He liked to spend his money on gambling. When Mickey Mantle retired from baseball, he developed cancer. 
a very aggressive cancer. And Mickey Mantle, the proud New York Yankee, who drank alcohol most of his life, ran around on his wife most of his life, gambled away much of his income most of his life, was now facing death. He wasn't seeing anybody. He didn't want nobody to see how he looked. Cancer has a way of devastating your appearance. And Mickey said, I don't want to see anybody, but I want to see two people. The last months of his life, he was paid a visit by the two people he requested. You know who they were? Bobby and Betsy Richardson from Sumter, South Carolina. Bobby played second base for the Yankees when Mickey Mantle was on that team. Bobby Richardson was not just a talk Christian, he was a walk Christian. Bobby Richardson did not drink alcohol. He did not put beer to his lips, wine to his lips, hard liquor to his lips. He did not drink alcohol. Alcohol was in the clubhouse. Alcohol was in the clubs. Bobby Richardson never drank alcohol. He didn't make a big speech about it. He just didn't. He didn't cheat on his wife. He was faithful to the vows he made to his wife, Betsy, while the rest of the team was out Crowsing, I guess is the word, he stayed back in his room. He was faithful sexually to his wife. He did not engage in pornography or immorality, which was very prevalent at that day. He didn't curse. Even when he made a mistake, he never cursed. He never said a profane word. His speech was always honorable. He didn't gamble. He took the money that he made and he tithed his church and he sent it back to his wife to take care of her and the children. He didn't go to strip clubs. He didn't run the streets. He didn't make big speeches about it. But he lived it in front of Mickey Mantle. And Mickey Mantle, though he was lost, understood that he was different. Mickey, uh, Bobby Richardson was different. He, he, was, he was separated. And that's why he wanted to see him as he was dying in his New York home. And Bobby came with his wife, Betsy. And Mickey Mantle gave his life to Jesus. He saw the real thing. And he responded to what he saw. I wonder where Mickey Mantle would be today if Bobby Richardson had lowered the bar I wonder where Mickey Mantle would have been today if Bobby Richardson would have said, I'm a Christian, but I can drink as long as I don't get drunk. And I can look at pornography as long as I don't actually engage in immorality. And I can curse as long as I do it in an artistic way. And I can gamble as long as I do it nicely and in the name of Jesus. I'm being facetious, but you can understand what I'm saying. Mickey Mantle saw the real deal in Bobby Richardson. In closing, Ruth Graham said something that's worth taking home with us. A holy person is someone who makes it easy for others to believe. 
a holy person who's different and separated, who's preparing for what lies ahead in this world and the world to come, is a person who lives their life in such a way that it makes it easy for other people to believe. That's what Peter's saying. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.